This is the second episode in a two-part series. Please listen to part one before continuing with this episode. This is The Fall Line. Last episode, we told you the story of Brian Worley, a man from Carrollton, Georgia, who'd moved to Atlanta and begun a life there and settled down with his partner, Jeff. But in 2007, his aging parents back in Carrollton had begun to need his help. Brian was one child of a large family, and he pitched in, driving the hour back and forth to care for his parents until his father's death. Then he moved in with his mother to care for her full time, Jeff, his partner, remained in the city, where his job required him. It was a stressful time, made more so by Brian's own health problems. He had a pacemaker, severe arthritis, and narcolepsy. And, on top of all this, he also had to maintain his mother's estate. Eventually, the Whirlies made the decision to move their mother into a nursing home. At the same time, Jeff was caring for his own ailing mother, and had left his job at his longtime employer, Bell South. Amidst all this, Brian had to drive down to Carrollton from Atlanta on the tail end of a historic flood for a court date concerning his mother's financial affairs. So, on September 22, 2009, he set out on what would usually have been an hour-long journey from Atlanta to his hometown. Instead, He was on a treacherous, flooded highway for hours, rerouted and turned around by impassable sections of road. He even pulled over part of the way through to have a drink at a restaurant, just to settle his nerves. He did eventually make it to Carrollton, a little worse for wear. The next day, he saw his sister Anita and her husband Spencer. He talked to his niece Amanda, his partner Jeff, and a few friends over the phone and he prepared for his probate court date. He was especially interested in finding one receipt. He was staying at his parents' empty home with plans to go to court and then drive back to Atlanta afterward. He and Jeff had plans to travel with his sisters, Anita and Jeanette, and their spouses a few days later. Neighbors later told police that they saw a light on late at the Whirlies' house that night, September 23rd. They thought that Brian might have been working late on the car, his parents' Buick LeSabre. He'd been driving that car as of late. It was gone the next morning, and it was only when Brian missed the court date that an alarm was raised. Phone calls began, and slowly, they pieced together their last communications with him. All his belongings were still at the house in Carrollton, save his wallet and the Buick. He told Anita, Spencer, and Amanda that he was thinking of getting a topographical map so he could find a better route back to Atlanta. Could he have gone out to get one? Had an accident? Had he skipped the court date? Left of his own free will, they were afraid to consider worse scenarios. Brian's partner Jeff called the local police from Atlanta. His sister Anita called too on September 25th. On that day, Brian Worley became a missing person. In the first weeks following his disappearance, the police files include a check of his phone records. There were interviews with some family members, like Anita and Jeff, who went to the station together. Amanda, his niece, checked his email and found no activity. Then she gave the password to the police. Brian didn't have social media accounts, and there was no indication that he'd made plans to meet with anyone. He had mentioned that when he'd stopped at the bar on the way to Carrollton, he'd met some interesting people, but there's no evidence that he connected with them again. If he arranged to see them, it wasn't by cell phone. At one point, a water bill payment seemed to spark a lead and some confusion. A receipt at the local water department showed that the water bill for the Worley's property was paid on the afternoon of September 24th. Brian was in charge of the bills. So, would that indicate that he had been in town after his missed court date? His niece Amanda explained the situation to us during our interview. The water company had a receipt 
for about 3 p.m. on the 24th, so the day of the court appointment, um, that it was initially thought where he went and paid the water bill, but it was actually an automatic thing where a refund was generated. So that did put a little bit of a delay. They're like, oh, well, he's here. He missed the appointment and then went to the the water company and uh, and paid the bill. Um, but we found out that that's not the case. It was the refund that was generated from an overpayment. The Worley property was undisturbed. And with no activity on Brian's bank account, there were no clear leads. The fact that there were no clear signs of foul play made every scenario up for consideration. According to the recollection of Brian's niece, Amanda, there seemed to be two main theories that initially developed for investigators. One possibility was that Brian had left of his own free will, possibly to pursue another relationship. Another was that there could have possibly been a domestic dispute between Brian and his partner, Jeff, and that Jeff could be responsible for Brian's disappearance. We spoke to Amanda about those initial paths of investigation. You don't want to discount anything, especially early on, because you don't know. You don't know anything. You don't know what you should be doing. And especially when the police keep pushing this narrative of he, he left on his own because there was an obvious sign of a struggle. And that they just fixated on that for so long and you just couldn't get them to listen and believe that's the case. And they treated it like lovers back for so long to the point where they even had Jeff take two polygraph tests. They searched like the the farm, they called the farm, which was a a renovated barn that was on some property that they had bought and they renovated it themselves. So it was kind of like a cool, trendy barn. There was nothing in the conversation that I had with Brian or any of the previous conversations I had with Brian indicating that their relationship was in trouble or was heading toward trouble or that they were close to ending it. Um, Detective Johnson specifically asked me like a few years later when I came down to kind of check in if um, I thought Brian was having an affair. He wouldn't have discussed that with me even if he had. Um, So, you know, I I just let Detective Johnson know that like there's nothing, there's nothing indicating an affair anywhere. I was in his emails. There wasn't anything indicating that in the emails. He was too involved with my um, grandmother's care at the time to have been able to carry on an affair or carry on one and hide it. And even if he had been having an affair, he'd have left a note. He would have told Jeff, I'm leaving. Like, this is it. I'm done. I, you know, I've found someone I'm happier with. It wouldn't be like 12 years of nothing. I mean, Jeff was his partner of like 13 years, just completely destroyed, didn't know what to think. The police were treating him like like Brian had, had left on his own, like he was just tired of Jeff and their life and that he was just walking away from it. And being married um, for longer than that now, I, I couldn't imagine be, being told that, being told my husband was just tired of our life and just left on his own when everything's telling you that's not the case and to the point where it's creating self-doubt where you're thinking maybe maybe that is what happened I I don't know um because I mean there was nothing indicating anything like there wasn't sign of a struggle there were there was no letter left or anything phones medications the house was in order can you talk a little bit about when they shifted from he left on his own to when they began to pay attention to Jeff as a possible suspect? I think it went hand in hand. I think um, those were their two main theories and they didn't necessarily separate them. They seemed like they treated it equally with with both. I think Jeff's first polygraph test, I believe was in like the first month of him going missing. So I, I, I know they're watching like bank account activities and social security numbers and just as information like didn't show up because if someone does leave on their own they're they're something like that is going to show up you know they're got they're going to use a credit card or they're or they're going to have to get a job at some point there's going to be a sighting and nothing showed up so they they would have started questioning jeff I, th- I think they searched the house in atlanta too jeff was always very forthcoming very cooperative with anything it was just like 
desperate for anything because any attention is better than the no attention with it. Like, yes, finally ask some questions. It would be several months before new information was added to Brian's file. In December of 2009, his car, the Buick LeSabre, was discovered in a residential area of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Its tags were missing, and they'd been replaced with stolen tags from Tennessee. The car was left outside the residence of a man who was known to work on cars, but he said he had no knowledge of who dropped it off. A neighbor said she'd seen a, quote, young black male leave the car at the curb, but couldn't give a more specific description. Brian's personal possessions, including a large container of change, were still in the car. The book he'd been reading, the place he'd left off marked with the Taco Bell receipt from his lunch on September 23rd, that was found too. Brian's car had been reported stolen as soon as his missing persons report was taken. Per the police reports, the car was processed for prints, and while some fingerprint evidence was gathered, it was not of high enough quality to be processed. When we spoke to the Carrollton Police Department in July of 2021, they told us they've attempted to reprocess this evidence at their lab. So far, the quality of the sample hasn't been good enough, but they'll keep trying. Per the Times Georgian and our own conversation with Carrollton Police, it was later discovered that the car tags likely had been switched sometime in October. The stolen Tennessee license plate on Brian's car had been reported stolen that month. In October 2009, Brian's car, or his license plate, may have been in Coweta County, Georgia, which is just south of Carrollton. Or, at least, Brian's plate was run by a member of the Coweta County Sheriff's Office. We can't precisely say where the car was, but we can say a member of that law enforcement office encountered it. We know this because an investigator from the Carrollton Police Department, Meredith Browning, did a routine computer check on the license plate years later. She became involved in Brian's case after the original investigator retired in 2012. She discovered that though Brian's license plate had been scanned by Coweta law enforcement, it hadn't triggered the system, a system which should have alerted both Carrollton police and the Coweta County Sheriff that the license plate was linked to a stolen car. We only know the plate was scanned at all because Investigator Browning re-examined those records. As far as we can say, an alert was not sent to Carrollton police that Brian's tag had been flagged. Carrollton police can't say for sure why this didn't happen, as the records don't include those details. We don't know why or if the tag was still on Brian's LeSabre. We do know, though, that it was run within days of the theft of the Tennessee plate. Though there was some coverage in Chattanooga, once Brian's car was recovered, no leads came in. There's thought that the man who dropped Brian's car off is not necessarily involved in his case. It's just as likely that he came across the car in a more circuitous manner and that it could have changed hands several times. If Brian's car had been left in Coweta, for instance, it might have passed through one or two people before it made its way to Chattanooga. The car wasn't damaged, stripped, or even relieved of its basic items like the change container. There seemed to be two logical explanations for that. Either someone came upon the car and used it as a convenient way to get from one place to another, as a ride to Tennessee. Or, someone's goal was not to steal the car, but to get it far away from the potential crime scene. When Brian's family found out that his car had been recovered, they had to deal with what that might mean. We spoke to Brian's sister, Anita, and her husband, Spencer, about that time. So, when you got that information, did your feelings change at that point? No, I don't think so. At that point, we were really confused and didn't know what to think or what to feel. I mean, I was afraid that somebody had gotten to him, somebody had carjacked him, kidnapped him, whatever. I didn't know what to think. Of course, we, we drove to Chattanooga, drove to the to where the car was found. Um, 
knocked on a couple doors to see if anyone could tell us anything. And just put some signs, put some flyers up. Had the local news come with us. And met with the local with the local news team there. And the question still remained. Had Brian left the house on his own, or had he been taken from the house? Had he abandoned the car, or had he been forced from it? Amanda, his niece, has considered every scenario over the past few years. And the unique placement of her grandparents' house on the lake is a consideration, too. Would Brian likely encounter a stranger there, or someone he knew? Can you imagine a scenario wherein someone completely unrelated to you or the family was just driving down the road and was like, oh, look at that light on. It's two in the morning. Who's over there? Or is that very unlikely? It'd be very unlikely. I, I try not to, with him, discount anything or with his case, discount anything. I mean, and from that house, you could see the rec department. So three on their side of the street, then there was the huffs kind of on like the dead end, like cul-de-sac part of it. And it, it was challenging like backing up and turning around there. There was almost like a big ditch back there. If you took that street as a wrong turn and were trying to turn around, I, I would feel bad for you because you probably would have backed your car up into that ditch. If you were going on that street, you were going there like for a purpose. So. When you imagined what may have happened, did you imagine him leaving the house in the night to go do something? Or did you imagine someone arriving at the house? Yeah, so I I tried to be like as logical about it as I I can. Um, So initially, like I, it wouldn't have been weird. I mean, it's a smaller town, there aren't at the time, there weren't that many things open uh, really late at night. He could have easily gone to Walmart and in search of the topographical map, maybe Waffle House or Crystal would have been open. Um, and, you know, that's, that's about it, maybe even like a, other than like a gas station or something. Um, so as it, someone who started college there and went to high school, like in Carrollton, like if you wanted to hang out late at night and you weren't at someone's house, you went to Waffle House because that was pretty much all that was open other than Walmart. There are a few incidents just throughout the years of like in, in Walmart parking lots. I believe there was a case where like a girl or like a college age woman was abducted from like the uh, Carrollton Walmart parking lot. Um, it got a lot of coverage at the time. Um, so it's something not unheard of that could have happened. And you also think, you know, it could have be something like that. And with the pacemaker, it could have stressed his heart out and maybe they didn't intend to cause harm, but then they're, they're stuck with this body afterwards. They know no matter what, it's gonna go bad for them. So maybe it was a dump job at that point. And then you start to consider what the police were initially saying that he did just leave on his own. And I, I still don't feel that that was right. Like if he did just need me time, or anything like that, it, I didn't have a text, a note, just, hey guys, I'm out, or I just need some time to collect my thoughts, I can't do this. It could have been as simple as that. It's not, there wasn't anything where he would have had to have walked away from his life forever and have this carefully crafted second life where he would never need to use his social security or credit cards or have any money stashed away anywhere. And you even start to, look into well maybe he did something to himself no matter how wrong that feels because it goes against his personality there are plenty of obvious suicides that occurred where they had a similar thing they a bright happy outgoing person who was who had future plans or going on vacations and to do these things and they, they did just have whatever moment of despair and ended their life. Um, but there's nothing indicating that either. With the lack of physical evidence, nothing at the house, no sightings at local businesses, no clues except a light in the window late at night, and a mention of a topographical map, Anita and Spencer have been left to wonder too. 
They believe it would have been difficult for someone to physically assault Brian, even with his health issues, not without leaving signs of a fight at the house. If the struggle took place inside the house, that is. If it had been out in public somewhere, or even outside the home itself, then the possibilities multiply. I don't know that someone just took Brian. Now, they could have, he could have gotten himself in a situation that he was drugged or, you know, or something took place that could have, you know, made him vulnerable. But if he was alert, Brian was not a vulnerable person. He was tough. I mean, he was, he was, he was a tough guy. He wasn't, you know, he was not a person with a chip or anything like that. But he, again, like I had said before, he, he, he didn't, he wasn't going to be pushed around by people. Um, um, so, you know, he not, not a bully or anything like that, nothing like that at all. He didn't start problems or anything like that with anybody. Um, but he, he, he did not take anything off people. So I, I don't know that someone could have put him in a situation that he didn't get himself into. Um, that, uh, I just don't think someone could have, you know, came to the house and kicked the door in. They would have been a, the house would have been torn to pieces. There would have been a struggle or if someone even came in the house and tried to attack him, there would have been, I don't think, unless they caught him unconscious for some reason, I don't think anyone could have done anything to him um, inside that house that we wouldn't have seen uh, signs of, uh, you know, of some type of struggle um, or something, because he was, you know, he just was, I always said he was scrappy, (laughs) and he was. The discovery of Brian's car in 2009 was the last major event in his case, at least while the original investigator was in charge. Brian's family tried to keep up momentum, and there were a few anniversary articles in the local paper. But his name mostly disappeared from the media. His niece Amanda spent a lot of time talking to Jeff, who was grieving, as well as dealing with her own pain. And I'm coming at it from... A, you know, a niece's perspective. Um, I felt like he, he was my best friend. So there were times where you go to reach, you see something, as it those moments that you forget that this is going on and you see something, you go to reach for the phone to call them to just get that shock, like that kick of, oh wait, I, I can't, can't do that. And it, it, the panic just never, 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 never goes away. Um, I, I, Jeff would call me um, at all hours. I tried to be as supportive for him as I could, but you could tell um, at some point it got to where it was hard for him just to, to be around me. And he, he would say it every once in a while, you know, he'd be fine and then he'd be around us and he would just have like days where it would just set him off, where he just couldn't stop crying. You have nightmares um, very frequently in the beginning. Um, they're less frequent now, but it still happens. Yeah, the, the nightmares are, are pretty bad, um, even when you, you wouldn't think they'd be bad. So the ones where he's just back, but no, like just no one's discussing that he was gone and no, like, just no one's telling you and so I just uh, like a maybe a few frustrating moments of happiness or like he oh he's he's here like why won't you guys like talk about what's going on just to wake up it's like oh that didn't actually happen like this never happened and we're never gonna have anything like that or anything he's never just gonna randomly show up three years and no sign of Brian Worley Amanda hoped that more leads would turn up, that more family would be interviewed, that more avenues would be pursued, but that wasn't the case. Not until 2012, at least. When investigator Meredith Browning, we mentioned her earlier in the podcast, and then-Lieutenant Shannon Cantrell were assigned to Brian's case in 2012, they decided to look at it from the very beginning. Cantrell is now the captain of criminal investigations for Carrollton Police Department and Investigator Browning, the public information officer. They're both still involved in Brian's case. We met with Captain Cantrell and Investigator Browning this summer. 
During the meeting, we reviewed further case files and talked about the work that had gone into Brian's case since 2012. When Captain Cantrell took over, he started by heading over to the Whirley's property. There, he collected Brian's personal items, like his toothbrush and his overnight bag. They were still in the room where he'd stayed that night, back in 2009. Captain Cantrell took everything there into evidence. We aren't sure why the items remained at the home, or why they weren't collected back in 2009, particularly Brian's toothbrush, as it could provide a DNA sample. The Buick LeSabre, which would have been returned to the family after processing, was sold, so it couldn't be reprocessed. However, as we mentioned, the fingerprint evidence from that car has been retained and is periodically reviewed for testing. Captain Cantrell and Investigator Browning reviewed the case files and re-interviewed a number of people. In addition to other work on the case, Cantrell eventually arranged a thorough search of the Whirley's property. He discussed that search during our July 2021 interview. A couple years after uh, Brian had been reported uh, missing, we went back and uh, the case was assigned to me and I kind of reopened it and re-looked through it to see what had been done and maybe what we could do next. Uh, somewhere around 2015, we elected to go back out to the house and do another search of the house uh, with Brian's sister, Anita, and her husband, uh, Spencer. I uh, did a walk through the house, took some photos, collected you know some stuff that we thought might be appropriate at the time. Um, then we kind of scheduled a, um, and the reason we scheduled this is by talking to Spencer and Anita, they were showing us a, a boathouse out behind the house. Really wasn't sure what could have happened to Brian. We knew that the last place he was seen was at the house, supposedly. So we thought, well, if it was an accident or even if foul play was involved and say he might have ended up in the lake, we thought, well, we need to search the lake because that hasn't been done yet. That's kind of intensive because you're talking, you know, looking underwater for evidence, especially something that's been there two or three years or, or longer. We contacted Tracy Sargent who has uh, cadaver dogs. Uh, I had worked with her previously. I trusted her and her ability and what she's done, and she's got a pretty long reputation with it. She came out more than willingly, brought three of her dogs one day. We coordinated with Carroll County Fire Department. Uh, I actually got into a boat with Tracy and one of her dogs and the firemen and, and rode the lake. We just kind of did like a I guess you would call it a cursory search, riding around the different uh, banks close to where the house was. She she told me at the time that the dogs pick up scents of, of basically like a decaying human remains, you know. She said that they do have the ability to, to hit on top of water also. Um, so we rode around the lake some that day. Didn't, didn't get any hits that I can remember on top of the water. Uh, we came back. We went through the property outside, the backyard, around the boathouse. She let all three of her dogs search the area. It was weird because all three dogs alerted on the same place. Uh, the only place that they alerted on in the property was around the boathouse area. So she felt very strongly at that time that either something could be currently there or something had been there in the past. So we used that information and um, obtained search warrant with the intent to search the boathouse. Uh, the boathouse had a removable floor where you could pull a boat actually into it. Uh, so we knew that had to be taken up. Uh, but during that time, we kind of got lucky too because the city was uh, doing some maintenance that they do every decade or so on the lake. They're actually draining the lake water level so they could get the silt out. So we kind of coordinated. We knew we had a, a good wind at that time to be able to see, you know, better than usual in the water. So we uh, contacted the county fire department, got their dive team, and got them that same week to go out and dive the area around where the boathouse was uh, because the water level was, was very shallow at that time from them draining the lake. We got them to search for any kind of foreign objects, any kind of, whether it be any, any weapons or any jewelry or any bones or anything, anything that was not supposed to be there that came back, they didn't have any luck when they were searching, but at least we felt pretty good that that area had been searched. And our hope was, say if, say if he just fell off a boat dock, you know, we might find evidence, but we didn't find anything. We didn't find um, anything evidentiary value that day 
at the boat dock, at the actual boat house either when we searched it. So that's kind of how we got to the point of searching the property, contacting Tracy to use her dogs and utilizing the, uh, the time that we had then to be able to search the lake that we, that we wouldn't have today or we wouldn't have had the day that it went missing because of the water depth. We were able to speak with Trace Sargent about the search of the Worley property. Her name might be familiar to you. She's one of the best-known canine search and recovery specialists in the nation. She's worked on many high-profile cases and aided in disaster recovery, like the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and has worked on over 1,200 national and international missions. She talked to us about her experience on Brian's case and how a dog search in a cold case differs from a fresh investigation. We wanted to better understand what the dogs alerting in the boathouse might mean and how helpful a search on water might be. The same conditions for the dogs are very different in cold cases. The threshold is very, very different. So we have learned working with archaeologists and historical projects that fall and winter actually is really good scent conditions for dogs in old grave sites. Whereas summertime, across the board because of the heat, humidity, the dust, the temperature, the scent conditions, all of that is very, very difficult for dogs to detect. Not that they can't, but the conditions are much more less favorable and the odds are more against us in finding scent at certain times of the year. So if we have a cold case that we can wait until the scent conditions are better, we generally try to do that. And again, when we're looking at an area, we can't look at it from what we're seeing in in real time. We literally have to go back and see what it was like 20 years ago. So it makes it a little bit more challenging, a little bit more difficult but we have work cases both a few weeks, a few months old, up to 350 years old, and the dogs have been very successful in both of those type of cases. Our job as investigators and canine handlers is putting these dogs in an area under certain conditions to increase the probability that we're going to find what we're looking for. In the file and in our conversation with the department, it was noted that the property was searched. When a dog alerted in the boathouse, it's described that two more dogs were taken through the same area. Can you talk to us about that process and why it's important? In that particular case, it was unique in that there wasn't a lot of evidence or clues or tips to go with. Uh, The investigators were Carrollton, myself. So we were at a blank state and that when we approached it, we looked at it from, all right, Let's check the entire property and just see what the dogs do. It wasn't, let's say, a specific tip that came in that the investigator said, hey, we want you to check the boathouse. It wasn't one of those kind of situations. It was a situation where they wanted us to check the entire property and just to see if the dogs responded in any particular area. So frankly, when we approach these kind of things, we don't go into it as an expectation that the dogs will alert or indicate to something there. We really approach it from an objective point of view of the dogs are going to tell us a story. The dogs always tell us two things, regardless of what we're looking for. They tell us where something is and they tell us where something isn't. So we go to an area and if the dogs don't do anything, That tells us a story. That tells us information that is helpful to the case. That tells us where this person isn't. And many times we find individuals, quite frankly, by process of elimination. So in Brian's case, when we searched the property, we really had no expectations. We wanted just to see what the dogs would do. So we checked around the house, around the yard, around by the waterways, The dogs didn't do us anything, didn't do anything. But when we went into the boathouse, they immediately started responding what we call a COB, a change of behavior. So when they came in, the first dog alerted to something being there. I was like, okay. So I had three dogs with me at that time, so I get the second dog out. We have him check the exact same area. We don't take him directly to the boathouse. We have him do 
the exact same search pattern around the house, around the yard, take him to the boathouse. He, too, responds exactly the same way. And the third dog, we do the same thing, too. So what that tells us is this. That tells us that there's human remains sent inside the boathouse and not around the house or yard. That does not tell us what happened there. The dogs can't tell us if a crime happened there or if perhaps there was an innocent thing, such as maybe somebody cut themselves uh, accidentally. They can't tell us that. That's where the human part of that teamwork and that equation steps in and says, hey, why did the dogs alert here and not anywhere else? So that's when the investigators step in. Sometimes it has nothing to do with the case. Sometimes it has everything to do with the case. So in that process, the investigators are watching this, and I advise them, based upon the dog's response, not only just their alert and indication in this specific area, but based upon the entire search of the property, the dogs are telling us, focus in this area and only this area at this time. And based upon their response to this, and in my professional opinion, this warrants further investigation. When a dog searches on land and where they alert is essentially X marks the spot versus the water itself, let's say a hundred acre lake. The dogs will search around the water and if they alert in a particular area, we can simply say, in this part of the lake, the dogs are picking up scent, but not in that part of the lake. It's not X marks the spot. And the reason for that is because we see, um, we can't see underwater currents, debris, uh, the movement of the water. There's a lot of variables that are going to move scent around. So where a dog alerts on water, it's a general area. Let's say a 100-acre lake, we can narrow it down to, let's say, two acres. Whereas on land, if it's a 100-acre search area and the dogs alert, it's X marks the spot. Of course, taken in consideration if the, if the terrain is upside, uh, uphill or downhill, we have to look at that on how scent moves. But in water, it does, it's a general area when you go into a lake or even a pool. If you go down deep, the water's much cooler. But when you come to the surface of the water, it's much warmer, even hot at the top of the water. Well, scent is attracted to heat, and, and it travels from the colder temperatures to the heat of the water toward the top. So the scent is literally coming to the surface of the water and coming out of the water and that's what dogs are picking up. What makes it much more difficult is us pinpointing where that scent is coming from. And in some situations, which makes it very difficult, is the recovery operations. Because those can be very dangerous and complicated based upon the water conditions and how, how deep the person might be or the terrain. Uh, all the things underwater that we can't see, which it makes much more difficult to make a recovery successful underwater. But the dogs themselves, it's very easy for them. So in Brian's situation, his house was right there on the lakeside. So what I look at first is where is scent going to be? Very similar to what we look at on land. Where is scent going to be based upon the time of year, the time of day, the weather conditions, things of that sort? In this particular case, we look at where the dam is. Well, dam actually pulls water toward it. So we check at the dam first. So if there were any human remains in that lake, the likelihood that the dogs would respond is high. We also checked in the cove of where Brian's house was located to see if there was anything right there along the banks or within close distance of his home. The dogs didn't respond to that either. So that tells us, again, where someone isn't. Water recovery, especially in cold cases, can be very challenging, and this is why. 
When you think about, let's say, somebody being placed in the water, if they've been there for years, the soot, the mud, the debris, all of that can literally bury them. And the challenge we have, as good as dogs are, they are not going to respond to scent if scent isn't there. It doesn't mean the remains aren't there. If the scent cannot reach the surface of the water, then the dogs are not going to respond. So that's the real challenge when you're looking at water recovery and the scent conditions. So can we say 1,000% that brine isn't in the water? No, we can't. So let's say if we get additional tips or leads that he was placed in a body of water, we're certainly going to recheck that. And we're not going to leave any stone unturned. However, based upon what we did that day, the information that the investigators had, I feel confident that Brian is not in that area. The strongest piece of, not evidence, but information in Brian's case, then, is that alert in the boathouse of possible presence of human remains. But not actually at the time when the dogs were present, at some previous point. And, as Trace pointed out after our interview, the dogs can't differentiate and tell us if someone cut themselves and spilled a significant amount of blood in the boathouse, or if a body was there. They just alert to the scent. If Brian had been in the boathouse at some point, injured or deceased, it's obvious that he would have been moved. To the best of Captain Cantrell and Trace Sergeant's knowledge, Brian is not in that vicinity. And it still leaves the question, if Brian was attacked in the boathouse, on his parents' property, by who? Amanda has told us it is not an area likely to be stumbled upon. So the Worley family is left with more questions. This possible clue and the movement of Brian's car from one location to another, together, they seem to indicate the possibility of foul play. It doesn't rule out the other paths, that he left on his own, that he had an accident, that he died by suicide. But it makes them less likely. And as Sister Anita still runs all those options through her mind. And I guess after so many years, sometimes I wish, gosh, I wish today would be the day. I wish they would just call and say, we found something. Or, you know, we found the person that had that car or somebody said something. That's, that's what bothers me was somebody was driving my mother's car that he had in his possession. And how did it get there? Who put the stolen tag on it? You know, and and I mean, I, I think I've thought of every scenario through the years, even the fact that maybe he walked away. I think he was having a hard time. He was, um, I don't know, I think with his relationship, with his, his lot in life, you know, taking care of mom, I think that was really, that was really getting to him. So much so that, you know, we had told him it was time for her, for for us to put her in another place where somebody could take care of him because he, he was spending too much time alone. I think he was depressed. I wonder what his thought process was because I don't think he had any faith anymore. Who knows? If he wanted to go somewhere, if he had someone else, if he wanted to move away, if he, you know... He would have, like Spencer said, he would have said, screw y'all, I'm out of here. You know, he had a probate hearing at probate court. They're not going to come lock him up for anything. It was nothing. I mean, I don't think the court case had anything to do with it. I don't think the flood had anything to do with it. Either he, somebody got a hold of him, he took up with the wrong person or met up with the wrong person, or he did something to himself that night. Now, it just bothers me that if he has to be out there somewhere and nobody has found him, nobody has seen him, nobody has found him. So, yeah, if, if, you know, years later, somebody might come forward and say that they saw something and they just remembered it or were afraid to say something or, I mean, I'll take anything. 
For their part, Spencer and Anita think that whoever was involved in stealing the Buick, whether they took it in Georgia or found it in Tennessee, that person is key. And, like investigators point out, that person may very well not be the person responsible for Brian's death. As a matter of fact, we had stated to the Chattanooga Police Department and to the Carrollton Police Department that if the person that left that car there didn't, you know, had nothing to do with Brian himself, the car was they bought the car stolen or that was given to them by somebody, that there's no charges for stealing the car. You know, there, we have, no, we don't care. You know, we just want to know how they got possession of the car. And um, if that could lead us back to, you know, did Brian give it to somebody or did he sell it to somebody or did someone take it from him? You know, if that could be, in my opinion, key is making sure that person knows if you drop this car off and you had nothing to do with, then you're not in trouble. We don't care about that. We got the car back. We drove the car. So that we don't care. We don't, that means nothing to us. It's just more important to us to know how they got the car, how they came in possession of it, so that we can kind of get to some way of, of finding, you know, that missing piece that could lead us to what happened. So what's next? Brian's case is still open. At the time of this episode's recording, Carrollton PD had just met with Amanda to update her on the case and gather more information for further investigation. We've spoken to the Whirlies about getting their familial DNA in Jedmatch. There's hope of more news coverage for Brian with the release of this series. And for Amanda, there's been another kind of shift, immersing herself in memories of her uncle and Jeff in order to work with us. It's been intense, especially just a few years after Jeff's death, especially now that she's a mother and closer to the age Brian was when he disappeared. Jeff passed without any answers, without knowing anything um, about what happened to his partner of 12, 13 years. Uh, They had planned to spend the rest of their lives together. Um, This is how I always feel, um, even which is normal, like funerals and stuff too. It's like you want to be there and you want to be supportive, but you also don't want to be the one when they're finally having a normal day and they're finally not thinking about it you don't want to be the one to call and remind them of that like devastating like emptiness if they're finally having five minutes where they're not thinking about it. But even after my daughter was born in 2015, um, Jeff and I would still kind of phone tag each other. Like at night, I, I would get voice messages where like two or three in the morning where he was just, you know, just consumed, just crying, didn't know what to do. And I would try to reach back out to him in the morning and wouldn't get a call back, you know, because he had gone to work. He had to go back. At some point, you have to go back to participating in society again. Most often, she thinks about the special role that Brian played in her life and what he might have been like with her own children. I don't know, seeing my, my daughter and just knowing how much they would have loved each other because, you know, all it's like personality and stuff. They're just so silly. They're goofball just like little weirdos and he would have done absolutely everything she wanted to do he would have played with her non-stop you know he never even growing up he never told us no he was tired he wouldn't play with us he always did it and a, a hole really develops inside you but you learn to live with it you have to choose is it it, it could be even like years later. It's like, do I let this consume me and let this become my entire life? Like, is, is this it? Or do I slowly start picking things up and stop myself when I go to mention him or the case? Um, I'll, I'll never be the same person as I was when he went missing. I'll, I'll just never have that luxury of not knowing what it's like when a family member goes missing because you see it in movies and TV shows and you're as sympathetic and empathetic as possible. It's like, oh, that has to be terrible. It's like, 
it's it's more than that like there is not a word that was ever created to describe that that empty feeling it's i don't know you just know your life would have been completely different If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Brian Worley, please call the Carrollton Police Department at 770-834-4451. There's a $10,000 reward offered in his case. Brian Worley is a white male with blonde hair and blue eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was 5'7 and approximately 150 pounds. Brian would be 51 years old today. You can see his picture on our social media accounts. We also want to recommend to all of our listeners Trace Sargent's new podcast, The Seeker's Quest. She's telling some incredible stories from her career, and we think you'll love it. There's a link in our show notes. You'll be hearing more from Trace very soon, right here. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is a fully independent show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIAs, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to fund the Millbrook Twins Billboard, begin a therapy fund for families who've been on the show, and many other projects. You can read a public post about those goals on our Patreon page. Each and every one of our patrons helps us continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes, plus blogs and videos for only five bucks a month. We've also added video live streams, which all patrons can enjoy, starting at just a dollar. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters and Kim Fritz. Family interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to private investigations for the missing. Please join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families access the service of PIs. 